Hi, and welcome everybody back to this week's show. And I'm really excited again to have a second part interview with Darren. And we're already looking at how he is stepping out of his practice, getting the, his practice to run without him so that he has more free time. And we're going to be evaluating some other ways that Darren is thinking of developing a, a second restream of income, which is very scalable and could provide a passivity of income. And uh, so we should have a very interesting conversation. So anyway, see you on the inside. Welcome, Darren. How are you today? Great. Thank you for having me back. I've been looking forward to continuing the conversation. Finish off the last interview with how you'd been setting up all your training IP. You were bringing your practitioners in and, and training them in your IP so that they could now serve your clients so that you could work on building your business. And we talked about how you could use that IP to set up a second business, which is training people in your particular uh, area of expertise because lots of people want to learn it. It allows them to go out and do what you're doing. And uh, we had a little bit of a chat before coming on to air and starting to record this. And one of your concerns, of course, is if you train, because in any business model, there's a weakness, isn't there? And there's a strength. And the, the, the potential problem that you may see in training others in your IP outside of your practice is that they may compete against you. Correct, Darren? Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I probably feel a bit differently to that because I, I think that, no, just, I just want to sort of analyze business models at the moment. I actually want to come back and work with you a little bit around this. If, if you move forward five years, what do you really want to be doing? Darren, like what do you really want to be doing? Um, I think I would love the opportunity to, first of all, know that my practice is running with, with still some input, just to be clear, I'm not looking to never be here and not have my hand in the runnings of the practice. It's just that I feel that I've got more to bring to the business in this next new role rather than being the caregiver or the practitioner. So I want to be consulting to my team rather than to my clients and let my practitioners consult to my clients. Um, but as part of what I would love to be doing, um, it would be awesome if I could on a semi-regular basis be traveling and teaching my approach. And that would give me the opportunity to, to travel, which I love to do, but I would have a, tax deductible reason for doing it and it would potentially get me um, to various parts of the country or the world and um, I could do that without the guilt of knowing that I'm just on a permanent holiday. <laughs> what do you, what's your mission? We even talked about that last time. Like we, we talked about, we know that you're passionate about uh, yeah. clients, but uh, yeah, what's your mission? Well, with your, with your IP and your work, what, what is your overall mission? Because I, I think we'll get a sense of it, but I'd like just to communicate it before I go where I want to go. 
Look, I, I do think that I do think that this particular group of patients that I've focused my professional attention on being people suffering from jaw pain, face pain, ear pain, and all related symptoms is a very, very poorly um, managed group of people. And there are a number of reasons for that. The first one being that um, traditionally the people that would be tasked with treating jaw pain have been the dental world. And um, somebody's presenting symptom might be ear pain, which could be coming from their jaw, but they land up seeing a GP and they don't ever land up seeing a manual therapist when this is really a group of musculoskeletal conditions. So there's a lot of education that needs to take place for both the medical and dental worlds um, to understand that if it's not something that falls um, strictly within the realm of what they see. So for example, the ear pain is not an, an infected ear, and, you know, they've trialed antibiotics and yet there's still a problem for them to be thinking a little bit, just a little bit further and think, well, this must be still coming from somewhere and potentially it's musculoskeletal, which is, those are the kinds of patients we see and, and, and work well with. So I think, it, I think it's, um, uh, my passion is really around making the, the appropriate type of treatment accessible to the patients, but also having the people responsible for um, prescribing that treatment uh, more aware of options that are out there and, and available to their patients. So there's a lack of training in the physio world, but there's also a lack of awareness in the medical and dental world about the fact that it's amenable to, you know, um, appropriate treatment, physiotherapy type treatment. So I guess that's a dual passion. Yeah. You're, you know, like you, you've really nailed it as far as I'm concerned in regards to communication, you can really see that you want to bring the mission of your work to the world to relieve the suffering of people with those issues and challenges because you feel like they're not getting what their needs met. So that, that's a very value-driven uh, mission that you have. So I want to play a bit of a devil's advocate right now. How does holding on to your practice limit your ability to do something on a bigger scale in the world as a teacher and trainer of the IP? Yeah. Well, I mean, it does because I'm, I'm basically blocking, I'm, I'm blocking that bigger picture um, uh, desire. Uh, but, but I guess the fear um, and that's the part that you'll help me with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why I was looking at this stuff. That's why I want to be the devil's advocate because I can see something. Yeah, keep going. But uh, the, obviously the fear is because this is the source of my income. I mean, this is how we live and pay for education. And my younger boy finished his VCE yesterday. So we had a big celebration last night. So congratulations. Um, I've got both kids out of um, through private schooling. But... Um, you know, being a single source of income, given that my wife, my wife works along with me in the practice on the admin side is just not shooting myself in the foot by opening up access to that intellectual property. And, I, and I, as I said to you before we started the show, I'm sure that it's, it's probably an irrational fear um, rather than being, you know, based in reality because potentially for people to 
to compete with me in a real meaningful way would be quite difficult for them. Um, that's also one of the reasons that I'm attracted to the international or the interstate teaching because then I'm not teaching it here in my practice to the guy down the road. Great. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. Um, and fantastic. You give me something to work with here too, which I like to do. So just coming back, I just want to sort of cover off on what Darren's just said and everyone will get this. This is his business. This is a source of income. So he wants to hold on to that. I'm going to be coming back and addressing some of those things in the moment. One of my roles with anyone that I'm working with is to help them see things differently, or maybe they've got an unconscious block that's stopping them from realizing something or stopping them from moving on. So we've got to sort of identify those things. The, in, in holding on to his existing business, because this provides his safety and security money, what that can do is disable him from fully living out his mission. So if he didn't have his practice, as an example, then he's not so concerned about people competing against him, which means that he will go full bore into sharing his mission throughout the world. Um, and so there'll be more energy for that. So that makes sense, first of all, Darren, if that was the case. If you didn't have your practice, can you see the effort and energy that could go to spreading your IP right around the world and, and no fear of have, you know, giving to someone that's going to compete against you in your practice. Can you see that? Yeah. 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 Okay. So there's, there's two things here because strategically that could be easily managed. There's from a strategic perspective without even looking at what's going on in here yet, which I want to, I want to show you something in a second or see if we can see something that's going on in here. When we talk about here, we're talking about your mind, your brain, the way you think, what's happening on the unconscious level. Um, and potentially, if we look at it from a financial perspective, teaching worldwide can outstrip your, the income that's possible from your practice multiple times over, multiple times over. Now, why do I say that? So as an example, whenever we have a practice, uh, there, there, there are several challenges in the practice model. The first one is we are capped in our income by the size of the property that we inhabit. And Darren's nodding right now, right? Because he's he gets it. So if, if, if you run a practice and you can only have six practitioners in there and you know, let's say those practitioners work eight hours a day and each treatment takes an hour. And I don't know what I'll ask Darren in a minute, but I'm just working with this conceptually. That means that there is six times eight, um, six times eight. So each day there's X amount of bookable hours and because of constraints of property, you can't go past that. So at six, eight, I'm terrible with maths and I don't even have my uh, calculator near me. You're going to be quicker, I hope, Darren. Six times eight, so that's six practitioners, eight hours a day. Yeah. Very, you any good at maths? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone gets the concept. There's probably 150, 160 hours a week and someone's sitting there going right now, Perry, yeah. that's 
disgusting. Now, for those of you who go, that's disgusting. I have financial people. I employ experts to do that stuff for me. Anyway, um, um, the so that caps. Okay. Now, with that, also practices are expensive to run. There are huge amounts of rent, and then to keep that ticking over, it takes a lot of effort and, and energy. Versus training businesses, training businesses by default. Um, carry way less expenses uh, depending on how it's done and you're less team reliant because it takes less people to run education style businesses so in reality a training model produces way more income has less stress in running it because there's less capital requirements, you're not paying huge amounts of rental and you don't have to worry about huge numbers of team. And there's no limit on the scalability of it within reason, right? Depending on, on how, how much it's based around you versus, uh, you know, like you, you can have a static training. And you can be if it requires you giving one-on-one -on -one training or one training course that's that scalability that gets out when you're working at your training models so we're sort of being the devil's advocate um if you're truly being truly a mission to spread this work wouldn't the plan potentially be to build out your training, not for your, for, for your, your personal practitioners, but take that worldwide, make it area-based so you're not training where you exist at this point in time, build your income, build your practice to sell out, to concentrate on next stage, which would be training practitioners. Does that make sense to you? Can, can, how does that sit with you conceptually? So um, just to clarify what you're saying, are you saying to get the existing business to the point where um, somebody else takes it over and then focus the time and energy on the training business? I'd be doing two, both probably. So I would be building income into the training business. Yep. And again, I said, if you're worried about training practitioners in your area who end up competing against you, just don't offer training to people in your area. You could go, you could do this in America, you could do it wherever you wanted, build that income up. Uh, you'll be able to test it and find out what works, work out your, your, uh, uh, what your budget's looking like. You know, you'd be able to test that whole process. And once that thing's starting to build income for you and you, mm -hmm. and you have what we call a success model where you've worked out how, you, how best your marketing works. Like any business, as you know, you go through that testing stage, that proving stage, you, you bring it to a certain point where you know that if you spend extra money now, that it's going to be successful because it's been successful up to that point. Your marketing systems are working. That's when you might up, upscale the investment, knowing you can take it to the next stage. So to, to me, I would be doing, I personally would be looking at doing that while building the, your existing practice. I know that's a lot of work, but the moment I would see that this was looking like it was doing well and uh, everything was proven, 
uh, there's a couple of things I could do. I could then sell the practice if I was you, knowing that I'm going to take some of the capital that I get from selling the practice. I'm going to put it into the new business, rebuild that income up quickly. Or you can even get to the point where you can see that your income from the training business is equal to what you're making in this business, then move it out because then you'll have all that energy to put into the new model and the new model has many benefits compared to the old model. I see that from a lifestyle perspective, from your, from a mission perspective as well. Yeah. What, what's your viewpoint around that? Yeah, I, um, uh, I see what you're saying and I, I, I agree with your assessment on the, the benefits of the training business versus the bricks and mortar business because of it's very, very, very expensive to run. Um, I still think that the, the logistics around the, um, the training business that, are, that have constraints in terms of how many people you can fit on a course and how many weekends you have in a year and how many weekends you want to work on it in a year um, and what people will pay for the training, etc. So I've, I've never sort of really thought that it had the potential to match or exceed the income from the bricks and mortar business. But I guess that would depend on whether I were to explore um, video-based training as opposed to face-to-face -face training. But I think face-to-face -face is quite an important part given that it's a very manual type of skill a lot of it doesn't have to be but there's definitely a face-to-face -face component that should take place to get people adept at the skill okay again uh, we've just covered off on a lot there you, you you often do when you speak like there's there's gems and what have you in there so two things everyone what we're looking at now is you can see that with this training business and i'm all about scale okay so i'm always about scale Scalability only happens if Darren can duplicate himself. If he can't duplicate himself, he again will become a cap to scale in his next venture. So if it requires him to be working one-on-one -on -one with every person, then that business model will, excuse it, but it kill him. It's just too much. Hmm. So in, in developing a training mod mod module, um, we have to take into account how best to, to teach people because Darren's obviously got high standards. So he knows that anyone he trains has to be taught to the highest standard, but how does he teach them the highest standard without he himself having to be involved all the time? Or, or, or somebody that, that becomes a trainer in my method. Correct. And this is where I was going. Okay, great. So, this is what you do when you flesh out business models. Now in my course, my big program, we, we have uh, a module called um, winning and losing business models. So uh, certain business models are losing business models, meaning that it doesn't matter how much money and how much effort and energy you put into that business model, that business model is only going to, mean you have to work really hard for the rest of your life where what we're exploring right now is a winning business model a winning business model um, leverages in this case in a training from, from a training perspective leverages knowledge and ip and teaches it to others and if that can be done where 
there's static training and one person maybe doing group trainings, then we start to see we have a scalable business model that it's a winning business model that helps the clients, but will also give the business owner a really good lifestyle. And that's why when we design business models, we're going to take all these things into account. So Darren, the next question I have for you is you said you couldn't see it replacing your practice income. Okay. And why? Because I, I would see it replacing your practice income and multiplying what you're getting in your practice by, by, by multiple. <clears throat> I guess just by virtue of working out how many people and this, and the model I'm talking about is running courses where you have 10 to 20 people attending a course, um, where there's you and another practitioner as the teachers and the, you know, demonstrating, um, I think it was just when I just ran the numbers in terms of what I could generate, you know, on, on a, on a weekend, two day weekend course, even though my method would require a, an introductory course and then an advanced course. Um, it just didn't see myself sort of getting to the types of figures that, you know, I know I can generate out of my practice. So. Okay. Maybe. Great. Great. I want to go a little bit sideways here and we're, we're all too close to ourselves, me included. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes we can't see freshly because what we're, we're, where I believe Darren's coming from at this point in time, everybody is what we call the practitioner. When you come from the practitioner and you get to remember Darren is uh, uh, he really is a practitioner, right? But the practitioner, the, what we call the practitioner subpersonality, really cares about the client. And in this case, the client we're talking about is someone learning his technique. So Darren from his practitioner part really cares about the client and he has his perfectionist models of how to teach the client. And because he's coming from that, he's seeing, well, I can only teach this number of people because I've only got this amount of time, right, Darren, correct? Correct. Right. Now, I'm going to ask Darren to hop into another part of himself right now, which is the one that I'm looking at this through, which is the entrepreneurial part of him. So what I want to do is just go a little bit sideways here and ask you a couple of questions or, or take this in a different tangent. Yeah. You have a, a really well-paid paid niche. Can you see that? You yourself have a real well-paid niche. Yeah. Well, for it, in terms of physiotherapy world, yes. Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. So how many people out there would love, how many practitioners would like to be involved in your, a well-paid niche, do you think? I think a lot. And I know this might sound simple, but why would they want to work in a well-paid niche? Well, there's less competition in a niche just by definition. Um, and because it's more, because of there's less competition, um, well, number one, the, the level of satisfaction that we get from helping these particular patients is 
next level from from my perspective and the people that work on my team. They, they really love the life-changing um, impacts that they can have on somebody who can't otherwise function normally. Um, so, yeah, so what you're saying to me that you your, your IP allows a practitioner to have more fulfillment than they naturally would because of the results they're getting for clients and getting them out of pain. And, yep, well, you, you want to say something? I was going to say, be, not because my technique is superior, but because it's effective for these types of patients. When people have got brain fog and they've got headache or they've got pain in their face, it becomes very difficult to function and be happy about the world. Whereas somebody might have a really bad shoulder, a really bad ankle, but they can still function largely. They may not be able to participate in their chosen sport, but it doesn't, it doesn't dominate their existence quite so much. As well as the fact that the people we see have often been pushed from pillar to post, have just been told that it's, they're stressed and they're clenching their teeth and that they should just you know, have a holiday or something. Very impractical bits of advice that are thrown at them from people. So when they find somebody that understands the issue and can give them real, real treatment help, but also lifestyle management advice, how to really reframe their, their engagement with their work environment, their sleeping environment, self-help techniques, they're, they're eternally grateful. And, and that's what makes it um, a nicer group of people to work with, I believe. Right. Yeah, great. So again... And everyone listening and watching this, just notice how Darren naturally goes to his practitioner. He's gone straight to, again, how much fulfillment he gets and his practitioners get from taking this IP and using it with these clients who have struggled for ages. So you can see the deep fulfillment for the practitioner and you naturally go back there, right? So I want to just go somewhere else with this. Yep. So, so, but this, yep, we get that. You help people. I just want to go to business right now. Okay. So yeah. that's important. And what else, again, just to clarify. So if, if someone else is working in that niche, it, it's a niche that's not saturated yet. Right. I know that for a fact from what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for someone to learn your IP, from a business perspective, what are you giving them? I'm giving them a new source of income that they wouldn't otherwise have. Thank you. Now, this is where I want you to go in, in your thinking. Can you see that you're actually you are providing a business model as yeah. well as, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I believe that I, and I had a conversation with um, a colleague recently who's interested in maybe doing a joint venture with me. And I said to him, what I really have is a business in the box because everything that I've spent years developing is ready to roll out. And obviously it's going to be packaged properly, but I mean, it's more than just the technique that I have to give people if they really want to pursue this um, in, in a significant way, rather than just coming on a course and learning how to treat the occasional jaw pain patient. Thank you. So I want you to just have a look at something for a second because I'm coming back to what you'd said earlier. 
So what do you think people are willing to pay for a business in a box? And that's not just a business in a box in the sense that this is a business in a box that gives them money, security, a deep fulfillment working in a niche that they'd love to work in, right? So I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anything more perfect than that for a practitioner? Oh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll ask again. Is there anything more perfect than that for a practitioner? No. No. I'm, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm glad you're smiling because you can I, – I, I really want you to value this more highly than you probably are, okay? Yeah. So, so uh, this is for those of you listening and watching. Darren will know this. Uh, a lot of the practitioner schools pump out all these practitioners and they can be highly trained practitioners and then the practitioners get into business and they don't know nothing about niching and they end up just being in a lot of pain. So what Darren's actually talking about is not only teaching them a technique and a practice that helps people, but right from day one, putting them into a niche that is undoubtedly going to be a growing niche, right? Now, again, that is in an incredible solution. It's a solution for the pain of practitioners. Incredible. Um, and in reality, that can be priced highly. Can you yeah. see that? Yeah. And here's another really important thing, because I'm just sorry, I'm thinking outside of the box here at the moment, at this point in time. If you were the head dominant trainer and over three or four years, you trained people all over the world, at that point, there will be a point where there's saturation. But at that point, you could stop. So what that means is by providing, I'm just I'm not being very clear here, but I'll I'm doing my best to, to communicate this. Meaning if you only trained X amount of people over a certain amount of time and, and franchises do this, by the way. So okay, we, we will only sell 40, 100 franchises. Sorry. Why I've, wouldn't they I've lost that last sentence. You faded out. Okay, so saying, so franchise organizations, they'll look at a country and work out how many franchises they can sell. Yeah. And they might go, okay, in Australia, we can only sell 120. Um, and they work that out because they sell 200, then the, the, the income for each of those places is diminished. Yeah. Get it? Yeah. So you potentially not only do you have an amazing business in a box, but by working out how many businesses in the boxes you sell into certain geographic locations, you are setting people up for life. Sydney might be able to handle 40 of your trained practitioners, I, I'm just making this up. You get, I was trying to think conceptually. Yeah. If 60 and they're cannibalizing each other. Yeah. Right. But if you train 40, now if I'm buying feed from you and I know that you're only training 40 people in the Sydney area and each of the, you might have a rule. 
right? If you're in Willoughby, you only train one person per suburb. You, you know where I'm going. I don't, I'm not being detailed here. Yeah, yeah. Then if I'm buying from you, I'm not only buying from a, biz, a, a business in a box, but I'm buying a business in a box that's going to last me my lifetime because you're, you're controlling who you control. Now, therefore, I will pay more for that training. Does this make sense? Yeah, because you've got a, an exclusivity for an area. Correct. Okay. Now, so what, what you can see here is, and again, this is why I think you're too close to it. You're probably not realizing the super value that you're actually providing. You're, you're, prov you're providing an absolutely amazing opportunity that will be relatively easy to sell. Now, why do I say it's relatively easy to sell? Because first of all, practitioners want techniques that allow them to enter a niche. And not only that, because you're allowing them to enter a niche and then protecting them in that niche by how many you sell, they know they're getting a lifetime of income through this initial investment of learning from you and being trained by you. So that what we're looking at is a highly enviable, wanted, and a potentially high value product with lots of margin. Does that make sense? So this is why I see it easily replacing. Uh, again, we haven't got to the other challenge and issue was how do you present that? Because if you're going to present that and you're traveling all over the world working one-on-one, -on -one, no, because that model is not scalable. Yeah. Right. So you can see conceptually from the perspective of what, the, what could be delivered to the market, and what that could deliver to you, you can probably see it's a no-brainer that that would be successful. Then it's working out how to deliver that so that you're not involved with everything, so that it is scalable. Make sense? Um, in terms of what you described, though, where you're, well, I would be training somebody um, and giving them their business in a box for their location. I mean, that, that is your, your, what you're thinking about, is there something with some passive income coming in from that business on an ongoing basis? Or is it a one-off training fee and a, you know, a met, an ongoing mentoring fee? Or what are, you, what are you thinking of in terms of where, where this, besides the high value item that it is, for that one soft transaction, um, where is the scalability? Because unless I'm continuously going to new locations and finding new potential licensees, etc. I really like how you're thinking. Okay, so again, and I'm just being rough here. Um, first of all, there's, there's potentially a high value ticket item in the, in the initial first purchase. That's the yeah. first one. And then there's, then you are, they, they become a member of your association. So there's license, there's license fees. So again, it comes back down to your IP. So as an example, you may have a lower upfront buy-in cost, but ongoing percentage every year for use of the IP. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now there are, there are challenges with that, but we're just being rough here. Um, and constant uh, upgrading of, uh, their skill set through ongoing trainings, uh, potential business advice. So yes, you can have a passive, what we call a passive or continuity income as a result of having them 
buy the initial product and having license fees uh, or association fees uh, or membership fees, however that wants to be communicated and packaged so that there's ongoing income. And several levels of, there could be several levels of advice that also don't concern you. So as an example, you could actually have a business trainer, right? And the business trainer is training everybody, but of course you're getting paid X amount a year for that. So you can actually, there's all sorts of ways that you can do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, so conceptually is that, uh, you're a smart man, I know that, right? And you may have thought about these things, but does that start to enliven you? Because there's something I want to bring to your attention in a second. Does that enliven you? Because I think you were thinking too small. Yep, yep, it does, yeah. Yeah, I think you're thinking way too small and not seeing the value in what you are actually giving someone. Okay, so again, I'll just say this categorically. I truly believe your training, your business in the box would way outstrip your practice um, and, and potentially so that you could stay in mission, you could constantly be upgrading your skills, be teaching all these people all over the world every year, upgraded skills as an example. So you get to stay on the cutting edge of what you're doing. We're holding on to the practice, which will take a whole bunch of energy and probably can't give you the same income will stop you fulfilling the mission in this next level of business. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah, you're smart. Yeah. You get that. Now, just from a, um, from a uh, perspective of working with you, there, there, there are two things that I think are really important to say. A, a lot of your success, Darren, has come from you're a methodical, analytical person who risks assess, right? You're careful. How careful have you been, Darren, in, in your decision-making? Um, I've been considered, but I, I've, I've tried lots of things that my colleagues haven't tried. and Not all of them have succeeded, but I've always been the one willing to step out of the everyday and try something a bit more, a bit more fringe. So um, I, think I'm, I think I'm both. I think I'm, I'm not massively risk-averse, but I'm considered. Yeah, yeah, that you weren't actually, but you do have a pioneering thing. You haven't done, you haven't achieved what you've achieved without that pioneering aspect to you. So I'm going to call that the pioneering aspect of you. It does take you to the fringe, okay? But you, you're also, uh, you're measured in your decision making. So as an example, I might make gut decisions and make them really quickly, bang where you would tend to think things through, correct? Just to correct me if I'm wrong. And so yeah. you, you might ponder something for a week and think about it. Could go even longer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, from a psychometric profiling system, in our psychometric profiling system, and anyone that wants to do it, just go to businessdnaindicator.com, businessdnaindicator.com. I'm a motivator and trailblazer. A motivator trailblazers, that's my predominant personality type. Um, uh, very quick um, in the sense of the number of ideas they get and they feel things through their gut and they process things through the creative parts of the brain. So they tend to be more unconscious in their decision-making processes through a feeling relationship with it. Okay, make sense? 
I employ people on my team. So I have everybody on my team is an opposite to me. They're my project manager. Sorry, my operations manager is she's very balanced in, in her personality, but she thinks things through. She looks at the details. My head coach, she questions. So I'll come up conceptually. They'll question. They go into the details. Now, I employ them for good reason because they're the opposite polarity to me. So I want them around to, to question my thinking, to uh, double check my impulsiveness, my, my spur of the moment uh, 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 approach. Okay. Mm. Now, what they will do from time to time, I, have to, I can't put them in certain roles because uh, they will be too slow in their decision-making. They're too, they're too ponderous in their decision-making. So sometimes in business, we don't have months to work through things logically. Okay. You, you get that. Decisions have to be made quickly. Um, so all these different styles make decisions quite differently. So you have that measured approach, you have the pioneer in you, but the measured approach, I want to go somewhere with this, has served you, hasn't it? No, oh, definitely. Um, yeah. My wife thinks I'm way too impulsive. That's you really, that's classic. <laughs> that's the pioneer in you. <laughs> but you're not just going to follow the pioneer. You'll think about it. You'll plan it. You'll, you'll correct yeah, I mean, I do, I do spend a lot of time analysing in my head the pros and cons and possibilities, yes. etc. Yeah, great. Okay. Now, I think in that, and you've been so close to your world, that you actually can't see the f full ramifications of the entrepreneurial um, outcome of that next business model, what it could actually be. That makes sense. Yeah, because and this is not a criticism anyone that's watching this, but I would say for for Darren, and it happens to all of us. We actually become we come become habituated to what we know and what we have done. So, as an example, if we're used to working in practitioner businesses you know, three or a half a million dollars a year or $200,000 a year sounds like a lot of money. Right. Get that Darren. Yeah. Where if I've, if I've got other clients who have businesses that make 40 or $50 million a year, their framework's quite different to someone that's grown up in, in a, a practitioner model. They're used to large amounts of money and, and, uh, maximizing out large scalable opportunities. So their mind naturally gravitates to that where I'm saying this opportunity of yours is deserving of that level of thinking. Yeah. Yep. Now there's another element here. And um, I, I think this also comes as a result of where you were born uh, on the unconscious level. I, I feel there's a part of you that can be, you're, you're a trusting guy, but you, there's a guard there about you. You've got to be careful. It's like you're, you're threat aware is probably the, the way I can say that. Does that make sense? Yes. And I reckon it comes from where you grew up. 
Would that make any sense, that last bit, about it having to do with where you grew up? Yeah, I definitely think that growing up in, you know, South Africa, Johannesburg, you had to be. You had to be on your guard all the time. It's one of the reasons we left. You yeah. laugh having to look over your shoulder the whole time. Yeah. So question for you, can you see that that as a habit pattern is also carried into business a bit? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the problem with that part, I'm not against that part, by the way, either, right? So don't get me wrong. But the, the problem with that part, when, I, when I'm looking at it, is it also is kind of complicit into not being able to see the bigger picture because it's being too threat-orientated around keeping what you have. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah. Great. In, in your past or in your family lineage, has anyone ever lost a, 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 a lot of money after they've made it? And I just want to just quickly clarify this for the listener or viewer. Oftentimes when I'm working, you're saying no, I think, by the way, is that correct? Yeah, no, there's nobody that's been, yeah. you know, lost everything. Great. Okay. So just share this with the, with the viewers and listeners. Oftentimes, so belief systems and patterns get handed down through generations. And there's a whole bunch of science that shows that now. So as an example, um, if, if your parents were in a POW camp and uh, were starving, that gets handed down to the, the, in the genetics to the uh, next generations. The, it actually changes the biology, it changes the gene, the gene structures, and so it changes human beings. So this gets passed down through lines. And what we often see is belief systems turning up that have come from family members in the past. And one of the things that we'll often see is uh, in Europe, after the war, where families had to move, like, you know, two hours, they had to be out of the country, and they, they lost everything, lost their businesses. And so what happens is, in the generations following that, the belief system is all about holding on because in, in the generational line, they've lost everything. So, so the person becomes very scarcity orientated and scared of letting go because it's actually the op opposite to what we consider abundance thinking, it's scarcity thinking born out of that, those past experiences. Um, and I feel there's a bit of that there, Darren, where it's, it, it's still holding on, thinking a bit too small compared to what could be possible for you with this. Yeah. Yeah. You, can you see that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, and again, just in case everybody, case in point, everybody that it, it's, you know, you can have all the best tactics, you can have all the best strategies in the world, but unless you're working with this thing as well to understand the patterns of behavior and beliefs that um, are undermining, slowing down or sabotaging you creating what you really want, nothing changes. You've got to work on both this thing as well as the, the strategies and, the, and, the, and the, the technical aspects of building uh, a good business that runs independently of you. Um, the, the other thing with this, Darren, and I just want to go here because I feel like this is really important. This is not so much about your patterns. You can see I'm being the devil's advocate about wanting to see something. And how do I phrase this, first of all? Sometimes these, these, these things are hard to say because just being able to communicate the concept. 
is, you know, some of us are born with very big missions. And when you were communicating before, there's no doubt anyone watching this, seeing this, hearing it, you, you, your, your mission, you have a mission. And that mission is to serve those people that are suffering with those problems that your IP um, solves, right? While you stay in your practice in, in this way and not go into fully promoting the training, you're actually putting a cap on how many people you can serve in the world with your IP. Can you see that? Yes. So, yeah. And, <laughs> and the reason I'm going I, here, yeah, sorry, you want to say I guess, something? I guess, I guess built into that is also um, a subconscious fear that, or a thought that, you know, who the hell am I to believe that such a laudable mission is mine to follow and, you know, what makes me better than the other guy who treats these things. Do you know what I mean? There is that, that sense of maybe lack of self-worth, you know, to allow me to be able to live up to that potential, if that is in true fact the true potential. I think what you've said is, is true, Darren, because um, there's more, there's, there's, there's kind of more to it than that as well. It's like you're naturally humble and that's who you are. And a lot of people that are serving service orientated are humble. You don't big note yourself. And that thing of who am I? Well, I'll go into who you are. So yes, that's true. This is, this is a sense of diminishing your own value. The moment we diminish our own value, me included, if I diminish my value, then I'm moving out of my mission because I do have gifts to share with the world. I do have abilities that can help people. So the moment that I'm devaluing myself, I'm not going to value those aspects of self and then I won't back those aspects of self. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then, I, then I'm not in mission, not in my full mission. Okay. So as an example, if I die knowing I've served 3 million people, I'll feel better than if I die just knowing I only served 200 people, if that makes sense. Because I am mission focused like you. Now, I'll go sideways into what you've just communicated. Well, there's two things. Maybe you're no better than the, the, the other practitioner. Okay, let's just say that that's correct. Maybe I'm no better than another practitioner. However, it is your mission, right? It is you that developed or, or took this IP into a particular niche and continued to work on it. You did that, right? Is that correct? Yes. You. And you have the idea of training other people in this to serve people that you want to serve. Right? That's yours, isn't it? Yes. Right. So maybe you're no better than someone else. Let's just imagine that. But still, you did it. And it's your desire to teach others. So that's you. That's your mission. <laughs> Make sense? Yeah. Right? And isn't that enough? 
because no one else is doing it. So if you don't do it because, well, I'm no better than the next person, you're not serving. You're not reaching the people you could. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I know for sure, or it's certainly my, my perception and um, the way that I view things is that we definitely try our, our damnedest to have the most thorough, far-reaching approach to this group of con- how we manage this group of conditions um, more so than often people will come and they've been elsewhere and they've seen other practitioners that have attempted to help them. But I feel like we just have gone the extra mile to make sure that we've covered as many bases as we can. So that, that from experience, um, I feel I believe that. But Yeah, get it. You know? Um, it's still... There's still, if you wouldn't mind me saying, it's like, yeah, okay, so uh, there's, there's a couple of things I want to say to this, and I've got a real quick solution, I'll tell you it in a second. Uh, it's actually a quick solution. That means you don't have to work on your patterns. So you, you show up with what we call the expert profile. So as an expert profile, you, and you've just even indicated that, you're always going to the nth degree. You're trying to find the solution, and if something's not working, you'll keep working because you're... Is that correct? Sorry, you just dropped out again. Yeah, I said it's you're freezing it actually. Yeah. Uh yeah, you the I heard you. Um you said that I'll go to the nth degree. Yeah, so it's frozen a bit. I don't know how it's gonna work now. Yeah. Um, but we'll give it a go. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you now. So you're an expert. You've got, yeah, you've got what we call the expert profile. An expert profile, you'll always go to the nth degree just because you want a solution for the problem. Yeah. And you do that out of care. Okay, and this is really important. Most experts are more interested in finding problems to serve others than their own ego and grandizement. Can you see that? Yeah. So there's natural humbleness. And you don't claim on the ego level what you're doing for others. Not really. You feel fulfilled when you help them, but you don't claim it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Now, the problem, there's many benefits to that because you're the type of person that's going to serve a whole bunch of people. But that natural humbleness and not grabbing it on the ego level, going, look how great I am, can also slow you down in business. So what I would be suggesting is that you would have a business partner who supports you just to be the expert. Forget about doing what you do, developing IP, teaching and training, and they become the people that yell from the rooftops, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And then you don't have to worry about your patterns. You just get about doing what you're doing and you've got someone, like as an example, someone like someone like myself, it's a no brainer to support someone like you and I've got no problems yelling from the rooftops if that makes sense because my personality is going to be more extroverted and yeah. I'm more I love humbleness right I'm actually, I would consider myself a humble person but you ask my family that they're the only ones that can answer that um, 
I don't walk around thinking I'm better than others or that I'm worse than others. And I'm, I'm over all that and was many, many years ago, right? I work with human beings. So, um, but I have, I, I understand in marketing, there's no place for humbleness. Because if, if, if someone's not willing to yell the benefits of you, as an example, of your IP, then no one gets to hear about it and the mission doesn't get spread. So I would look at partnering and it would be very easy to find a partner willing to back what you're doing uh, as a trainer in this IP. It just wouldn't be because of what I said before. I look at it and I go, oh, I'm questioning and keeping that practice in five years because this is such a, this is a business in a box that solves so many problems for practitioners it's worth a lot of money and can reach a lot of people, right? You get me? I saw that straight yeah. away. And so I would be looking at part, potentially partnering. The other reason that partnering would be really, really good for you is if you've got someone that's more extroverted and got the whole marketing thing up front, you're able to stay working in your practice while they're building the business for you and with you, but you don't have to spend all your time doing it so that you are allowing yourself to keep safety income in your practice, uh, creating safety income in the next business. And once you've got that to a certain point, you can easily make the decision whether you hang on to the practice or you let it go. Yeah. Make sense? Yes. Um, Darren, look, uh, uh, when I talk to you, I can just keep talking, talking, but I've just realized the time again. Mm. <laughs> Very early. <laughs> I have to go. Uh, I really thank you for today and I hope you got a lot from it. And I hope yes. that yeah, did you get? I've yeah, probably... it's been great. It's been yeah. really good. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. I hope you got a lot from today and I really applaud what you're doing, Darren. Amazing. In fact, I'm actually want to get on with you one other time. Um, I want to come back and even just talk about the processes that you've put in place in your existing business to build yourself out of it. I feel like we can come back and there's some good value in that as well and sharing that. Okay. Thank you, everybody. 